right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad that you guys are here or catching us online. Hey, about uh, Operation Christmas Child that we're doing, I want you to, wherever you are out there, whenever you are in here in-house, I love you guys who are here in-house, by the way. Love seeing faces looking back at me. Um, But I want you to prayerfully consider participating in that. It is such a great program to be able to share the love of Christ with somebody that you will probably never meet. But we do that just out of a selfless heart to, to give and to show love all over the world. If you've ever been on a mission trip, how many of you have ever been on a mission trip, especially overseas? One of the most impactful things that hits me every time I go is that the children especially, but even the adults, they just have a hard time wrapping their mind around the idea that somebody would travel all that distance just because they want to show love to them. Like, who are we? We are nothing. And you, the United States, we have everything. We are blessed beyond belief. We are the shining light to most of the countries around the world. And yet, you'd be willing to set that aside just to come here and see me. And their minds just have a hard time even wrapping around that somebody would selflessly love them that much. So I just want to ask you to just prayerfully consider participating in that. We've got, we'll have boxes out there all throughout the week and, in fact, even next weekend. But try and grab one today. and Let's get that process started and just show, show somebody that you will probably never meet how much you love them. And isn't that what the gospel is all about? Jesus Christ died for those, many of them, who would totally reject his message. But he loved them enough to want to give them that opportunity. So let's, let's do that. Let's be the light in the nations. Amen? You guys good with that? On those lines, in order to, to share that gospel message, the love of Christ, we want, as Discover Community Church, we want to step up our game. We already reach people in other countries all over the world. It's amazing for me to see people in other countries log in and say that they're a part of this. But not only that, but all over this country, all over this state, could be just down the block. Somebody that can't actually tune in or or can't actually be here, they come and they join us online. And so I want to take our online experience and make that better. If you've ever watched our online stream, it's okay. We are absolutely blessed to be able to have it. We have the one Mevo camera. If you're out there, you're seeing what it looks like right now. But I think we can do better. And one of the things I want to do is explore this idea of multiple cameras, different angles, better camera systems, and then the idea of instead of putting a picture of scriptures up, we can actually electronically do them. Bottom line is it's a better message. It's cleaner. and We can get that out, and it's something that looks better to share with others, and it just helps us to spread the message of what we do. So if you believe in what we do, and if you're out there and maybe like, yeah, their online could be a little clearer, a little better, our worship, it's not even just the teaching, our worship is amazing, I want to be able to share that. So we have an opportunity to upgrade our system, our AV system, so better cameras, uh, some better lights, some sound interfaces, different things like that, but primarily it's the whole camera idea where we can get in on a fantastic deal. We can buy some really high-end 4K remotely controlled cameras, link them into a full production studio that can do that. We won't even be doing it here. They'll do it for us. It's going to cost us about $3,000. Now, for those of you who just went, that's a lot of money. If you've ever (laughs) 
If you've ever looked into any of that kind of stuff, it is, it is actually really good. And what they can do for us is a really good service. But here's what I can't do. I can't have that taken away from our regular operating tithe and budget. I don't want our food pantry, I don't want our different outreaches to suffer because of that, right? So what I want is I want your buy-in. I want you, all of you out there watching especially, to have some skin in the game. So I'm going to ask you, this is the first time I think we've done this as a church, ask you to give specifically, if it's on your heart, to our video system upgrade. Okay, so that would mean if you're, offer, if you're doing it online, just shoot us a text or make a note somehow that you want this to go. And remember, this is not your tithe. This would be a special offering from your heart to up that. If you're here in-house, you can just write it on the memo, write it on an envelope, however you want to do that, or just somehow let us know. We'll put that too. And as soon as we reach that plateau of, of $3,000, we're going to do that. I'd love to do that in the next couple of weeks so we can have it in place by Christmas and take what we do here and, and just do a better job of getting that word out worldwide, all right? So pray about that. Love to have your participation, but just let us know if that's something that you're interested in. Comment online. Let us know that that's something you'd be interested in helping out with. All right, enough of that. Let's get going. Boy, talking about sharing the gospel worldwide, talking about people who you meet who have no way to wrap their minds around the fact that you could possibly care about them. How many of us here every day have a hard time wrapping our heads around the idea that God, the sovereign creator of the heavens and earth and the universe and everything in it could possibly care about you. Many of us do. I know I do sometimes even. I'm like, how, what could I possibly contribute to this giant picture that is mankind that God would care about me at all? Even I struggle with that sometimes, and I know that many of you do too. That's the idea that we're talking about as we go through the book of Job. So we're in this series, Blameless, a study in the life of Job. If you've missed any of them, go back and check out the previous. Um, if you go on YouTube, we have a channel, and you can catch, out the, catch the archive there. But obviously, it's all about, you know, the basic question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's kind of at the root of this of this whole book, really. And I look at it as the idea that God's going to use all this stuff that happens to Job to just bring him to a place where he has never even considered being before a depth of relationship. But before he gets there, he's got all kinds of influences coming his way, mostly guided by Satan, trying to tear away that idea that God could possibly care about him. We see... His good friend, Job's good friend, Eliphaz, who came in, you know, three friends came to travel, but Eliphaz is the only one who spoke so far. And man, it just seems like he's intentionally doing everything he can to prove to Job that God can't possibly care about you. You're a bad person. God can't care about you. And we know that's the fact because as of last week, we see, we see Job kind of clapping back at Eliphaz in response to what Eliphaz says. Now, what he, what he said isn't necessarily wrong, but they're careless. They're careless words, and they don't really fit the context of what's going on to Job. But what has happened is that rather than being fuel for the Spirit to speak to Job and reaffirm him and to strengthen him and encourage him, it's been fuel for Satan to actually do just the opposite. 
And when we're in this place where we are just desperately grabbing for anything, for encouragement and instruction and advice, we're desperately grasping for those things, Satan is going to use every trick that he can to get you to doubt. Get you to doubt what you know about God. Get you to doubt whether God even cares about you, about your friends. He's going to do everything he can to get you to doubt. We're going to talk more about that. In fact, most of this message is about that. But before we get into that part, I want to touch for a second just on this idea of our friends and what we say, having weight and having the ability to actually pull someone or take someone farther from God rather than closer to them and why it matters so much. So let's revisit the scripture from last week, Job 6, 14. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. If you caught our message last week, you remember we talked about this, but I want to ask you a question. There are scholars who debate back and forth on this scripture. What could they possibly argue about? They're theological scholars. They debate everything. But what I want to point out is at the bottom, the second line, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Who's the he that they're talking about here? Who's the he? Is the he the despairing man? Or is the he his friend? It's not really entirely clear. And it could be looked at both ways. In fact, like I said, there's scholars, it's about 60-40 on scholars that believe one thing or another. It could mean strictly that Eliphaz is forsaking the fear of God by not showing kindness to Job and thus incurring the judgment of God. It could be read that way, or it could be read the other way that Job might possibly forsake the fear of God because of what Eliphaz has said. So what do you think? Which one do you think it is? Out there online, what do you think it is? Anytime you run into a scripture like that that is unclear, okay, what do you have to do? Step one, look at it in context. Don't just look at that one line and try and figure it out from there. Look at before and after, and if you have to, look at what's going on and really study it out because when we do that, I think it becomes more and more clear. And in this point, in this case here, I think it's important that we look at it. So let's look at this scripture. Go ahead and leave that up there for right now. Let's look at it in context. The scripture right before this one, Job 6.13, reads like this. Is it that my help is not within me and that deliverance is driven from me? In other words, what he's saying is, do I have the power to get myself out of this when everything that I've counted on has been taken away? And then the scripture immediately following this one, Job 6.15, says, My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi. Remember that video from last week. Like the torrents of wadis which vanish. In other words, your advice has been deceitful and unreliable. So he's strictly talking about the effect that his friend's advice and help and deliverance that should have been encouraging to him, but it hasn't been. So in other words, what I conclude from this is Job is essentially saying this, I've lost everything, but I thought at least I could count on my friends for help. And I thought I could count on God to be there. Now I'm not so sure what I can count on. 
this is the place he is. Remember, even though Eliphaz spoke words that it might have been truth in another situation, they were way off the mark in this case. And we know that because later on, God actually points at Eliphaz and accuses him of sinning for what he said. So if you just read what Eliphaz said in isolation, you go, that sounds, sounds biblical. And it is biblical advice. It's just the wrong context and the wrong heart. And it's not having the effect. And what happens is that the accuser, Satan, really doesn't even need us to believe his lies, doesn't really even need to win us over to his side. All he's really got to do is get you to doubt. If he gets you to doubt whether God can care about you at all, whether God can love you at all, whether you're too broken, whether God even cares, then what you're going to do, you're going to quit praising what is good because you can't see it anymore. And you're just going to focus on what isn't. And isn't that just like today? So much going on in the world. There is so much that's praiseworthy happening in the world. Yes, right now, today, as we speak. So much good and praiseworthy. But we are being bombarded with the other side. Anything just to cause us to doubt. Is God really in control? If God were really in control, how would all these things happen? causes us to doubt. This has a huge parallel in today's media, social media, news media, anything, misinformation that's going on out there. It's not even really so much to win you to one side or another, just to get you to argue amongst each other and to doubt. What is truth anymore? We don't even know. I personally have been hugely convicted of that. I said this the first service, so if you're any of those out there watching online and you've made a Facebook or some kind of a post lately on social media, and I have trolled you and jumped in and said, is that true? Did you research that? Do you really know if that's accurate before you posted it? I want to apologize, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I feel like I should, and it matters to me. It matters to me that if we put something out there, especially as a Christian, if we put something out there and we're going to proclaim that that's truth, and by forwarding it or retweeting it or copy and pasting it, we are insinuating, I am standing on that soapbox along with whoever did it. I am proclaiming that as truth. And if we're going to do that, we should know for sure. Especially those things are dangerous if they agree with what our spirit wants to say. If what our flesh wants to say, if we're like, eh, that, that feels good to me, I'm just going to re, repost that or forward it. It could be dangerous. As we see here, Eliphaz saying these things that he's read, he's heard, it's good wisdom. He's not so far off base. He's just wrong enough to where God accuses him of sin. So that's where we are. Now, Satan has clearly used Eliphaz as a tool to get Job to question what he knows. He's, Job is like, I don't even know what I can count on before. I thought I knew, but now I can't. And that's exactly where Job is. So Job now, Eliphaz has done his part. Job refuted Eliphaz last week, but now he's like, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm just going to talk to God. So for the rest of what we're going to go through here today, Job is just directing his comments towards God. They're not exactly great comments either. You'll see there's a lot of questioning going on here. Starting with this, he just questions the point of the whole thing. 
Why, why are any of us even here? First scripture, Job 7, verses 1 and 2, says this. Is not man forced to labor on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. Job is he's saying, basically, I'm a slave on this earth. I'm just here to do your will. It's curious because those words, is not man forced to labor, is actually in Hebrew, it's just one word, and that word is saba. And saba means, by definition, warfare. So he's basically saying, is not man forced to do warfare on earth? So he's a slave just put there just to battle. Your days are just going to be a battle, one after the other. We see that going all the way back in Genesis where it's kind of laid out. That's how it's going to work for man. Genesis 3.17 says, And to the man he said, this is God speaking to Adam, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. So it's actually going all the way back to Adam where God says, because of what happened here, your life's going to be a battle. So Job's not off base here, but he's seeing himself as a slave, more of a pawn than really somebody that God even cares about. He's basically saying, you put me here in this miserable place, God, and all I get is what you choose to give me, just like a slave, whether I eat or live or die or what happens to me, it's all at your whim. Why am I here? He's questioning this whole thing. Job 7, 3, 4. So am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues and I am continually tossing till dawn. Even a slave gets to sleep at the end of the day. But God won't even let Job sleep. He tosses, he turns, he has nightmares. When he lays down, when shall I arise? He's hoping the answer is never. He's really just hoping, I I hope to just die right now. You granted me days filled with work, and I get that. But come on. Even a slave gets to sleep at night. He goes to sleep every night hoping that he won't wake up. Because really, in his mind and what he knows, that's the best he can hope for. This is how he sees his current situation. I'll read this to you. Job 7, 5 through 8. Here's Job describing where he is. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not see get, we see good again. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. In other words, I'm in agony, but at least it will soon be over. I hope. And he's saying he has no hope, but his only real hope that he's got is just that it ends. That is not a great place to be. See, Job has no He has no hope of salvation, of heaven, of an afterlife, because he doesn't know anything of those things. He's got no idea. So he just struggles to make sense of of what this all means. And it becomes clear when he says this, Job 7, 9 through 10. 
He says, when a cloud vanishes, it's gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. He sees his life as just vapor. It's just going to vanish. As soon as it came in, it'll go out. Just vapor. And really, what does it all mean? Like vapor, it just doesn't mean anything. That is a horrible place for him to be. But that's all he knows. He knows this concept of shoal. And when he goes there, he'll just simply cease to exist. And, and there's nothing beyond that. So he's got nothing more to hope for. If my life here on earth is uncomfortable and miserable and terrible and God doesn't care about me, why am I even here? To Job, Sheol was just a place of darkness. It's just a place where the dead, the good and the bad, all dead, just went when it was over. It's where they went. It was just a place of darkness. It wasn't until later when the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into Greek, about 200 uh, B.C. or so, that the word Hades was substituted for the word Sheol because it was a Greek word and they knew, the Greeks knew familiar with what Hades was. And that's how this idea of what that was started to coalesce. But at this point, Job only knew Sheol was just where everybody went. And that belief actually lasted quite a bit. Here's a cartoon that I found from the early 1900s. Again, it's just a cartoon, but it's this artist's rendering of what Shoal is. On the bottom, it says, Rapid Transit to Shoal, where we are all going, according to the Reverend Dr. Morgan Dix. I don't know who he is, but he's a reverend, apparently. But he still believes, even at this time, that everybody goes to Shoal. Here's these, these train cars, all just full of random people. Clerical scandal, society, uh, theatrical, artists, literary, basically everybody in their various groups are just all going to end up in Shoal. Here's all the conductors and everybody, all the demons down here. Satan's up at the top. He's just waiting for everybody to come on in. This is a belief that a lot of people have. Everybody ends up there. Now, what happens after you get there is up for some debate, but that's what they were thinking. So this is where Job's mind is. He just wants to get there. Forget all this that's happening on earth. There's no point anymore. Even God doesn't care about me. Just please take me there and it can all be over. You can take that down now. Now here comes the bridge between these two thoughts, Job's previous ideas and the new one. How do we know it's a bridge? Because it starts with the word therefore. So Job 7.11, therefore, I told you, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Leave that up there for a minute. That's, that says a ton of things right there. Let's look at it. First of all, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. If I'm just here, I'm going to disappear like vapor. The best I can hope for is just to have it end. If all that can happen, why even bother to restrain my mouth anymore? I'm just going to, I'm just going to vent. You ever vent and just say, it just feels good to vent just to get it out? We say that all the time. It's a common idea. But there's more to this here. Job says something here really insightfully. And I think he understands it because he chooses his words very carefully. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. That word spirit translates as the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach means the first time we ever see it is in Genesis uh, chapter 1 verse 2. Second verse in all of, this, all of the Bible I'll read it to you in case you've forgotten it. 
The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Spirit of God is ruach. That's the same thing that Job is saying, that I will, com- I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. What that means, Job's spirit is, is crying out in anguish over his loss of relationship with God. Then the second half of that, soul. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. That's the Hebrew word nephesh. Nephesh is yourself. Self, and it's comprised of your desire, your passion, your appetite, your emotions. And so Job is saying, my flesh is bitter about what I have lost. So his spirit is mourning the loss of his relationship with God, his closeness with God, but his soul is bitter about losing his home and his children his livelihood, and all the things that he's lost. Strangely enough, we only see that word, or we do see that word soul, that nephesh, applied to all of God's creatures throughout Scripture. We see it where it's all of God's creatures have that, that emotion, that, that appetite, that passion, but only mankind has a spirit. It's interesting. You see it worded like that. That's a whole other message I'd love to teach on sometime. But at this point, Job no longer cares or even thinks it's possible to have a relationship with God anymore. He just wants strictly just to be left alone to die because it's the best he can hope for. Remember, he's got no promises for anything else. Let me read to you some more about where he sees himself. Job 7, 12 to 16. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. That is a terrible place to be. I try to sleep, but you frighten me with nightmares so much so that I would rather die of suffocation then spend one more moment in this. Leave me alone. Again, in anguish, Job doesn't even consider himself worthy of this attention. He's wondering, why, why do you even care about me? Why do you bother with me? And he says it like this, Job 7, 17. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? This is a question of anguish that Job is asking. And it's a question saying, why do you even care? I am nothing. And it's exactly the opposite idea that we see in Psalm 8, Psalm 8, 3 and 4, where David, David is in anguish, but David is praising God for the very same reason. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him. See, David, the same anguish, (coughs) excuse me, different situation, but David doesn't have it rosy here. David's in anguish as well, but David holds on to and trusts in the goodness of God, and he's saying, I know you'll deliver me, but who am I? 
it's just because of who you are. Look at all that you've done, and yet you still care about me? David is saying this as a place of, of just awe and how amazing God's love is. But Job, just the opposite end of the spectrum. Job thinks he is just gum on the bottom of God's sandal. I was going to say shoe, but probably sandals. Job thinks he's not worthy of, like, why are you even paying attention to me? So the question, the question, the same one that Job asked here, have you ever asked yourself, who am I that God cares about me? And if you've asked that question, have you asked it like David asked it? Or have you asked it like Job asked it? It's the same question, but just from a different viewpoint. Job is saying, who am I to think God gives a rip about me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? God does all these amazing things. What have I done? Job thinks, he, goes, he concludes in his mind, the only way that God would pay him this much attention is if he had sinned big time. Not even just a little. He had to do something so great. And you know, he's racked his mind like, what have I done? His friend, Eliphaz, is beating on him. You did something. Think about it. You did something. You know you did it. All these accusations, and it's starting to wear him down. He's like, I, I can't think of anything. But he can't reconcile in his mind that there would be anything else. And he asks this question, Job 7.20. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I'm a burden to myself? It's like I don't, what have I done? He's still kind of really tenuously holding on to this idea that he didn't sin, but ultimately he can't reconcile it in his mind any other way. He doesn't think there's any reason why he would be worth all this attention if he didn't do something really bad to earn God's wrath. So he finally says this, Job 7.21, Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust. You will seek me, but I will not be. He basically gives in to the accusations of Eliphaz and goes, all right, I don't know what I've done, but God, forgive me for whatever I've done. He doesn't even, still doesn't even have any idea what it is, but he says, why don't you do it? So at the heart of all this, there's this, there's this struggle. Job is saying, if I'm just put here to be a slave, toil away, and then die, what's the point? What is the point? We probably all have asked ourselves a version of that at some point. What is the point of being here? In other words, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or put personally, who am I that God is mindful of me? After all, God, the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth, what have I done lately? to deserve his attention? Or better yet, what have I done to deserve his affection? That's a hard question to answer sometime. And how we answer that, though, is key to our trust in him, our ability to trust in him when we're going through a storm. Your spirit and your soul constantly battle with this question. That's where the battle, the spiritual battle that we go through every single day, that's where this battle happens. Your soul and your flesh can answer that question differently depending on your situation. 
your emotions, what's going on around you. Your soul can do that, and that is where Satan will attack you. Satan will attack you, and he will get you to doubt. So some people would answer that question, just like Job does here, I'm a slave, I'm a pest, I'm a pet, I'm some kind of entertainment. Most religions throughout time have considered man just to be at some level or another a plaything of their gods, God or gods, depending on their system that they had, living or dying at the pleasure of the gods, okay? And at best, doing everything you can to not be on their radar, doing everything you can to not get the attention of the gods around you, hoping to do just enough to make yourself not a nuisance and therefore get squashed by them. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so much different. The gospel of Jesus Christ is entirely different than any of these other religions throughout history and even today. You don't have to earn God's love. You couldn't do it. You can't. That's what Jesus is for. The simple message of the gospel is that we all have a certain number of things in common. Let me read you just a list here. I've got, I've got five things that we all have in common that make the gospel message of Jesus so different. Number one, every person who lives on the earth and has ever lived is created by God. All of them. Acts 17, 24 to 26 says, the Lord, the Lord God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and of earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their homes. Everyone was made by God. Number two, every person was made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You, as well as everyone else who has ever lived and breathed, is created in the image of God. Number three, every one of us, even Job, has sinned against God. Every one of us. Many of us today. But every one of us has. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then number four, every person finds themselves separated from God and deserving death for our rebellion, but instead receiving life. Again, Paul says, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, the most important thing, as I wrap this message up, the most important thing that we all have in common, God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to offer that gift to you. Everyone, those who don't know him, those who won't accept it, Jesus came to offer it to everyone. John 3.16, obscure scripture, many of you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ that Job didn't know about. 
Job just had to hang on to what he saw happening in front of him, and that's all he knew. And when he could no longer sense God's favor, he said, what is the point? There are many days where we go through our life not being able to see God's favor with our eyes, feeling with our emotions just the opposite. But if you have given your heart your life to Jesus Christ, you have been offered that eternal life in him. And so you know, no matter what happens here on earth, God loves you and God has sent his son for you. So to answer that question, who are you that God is mindful of you? Let me borrow a phrase from an author, Virginia Woolf. And it goes like this. In case you ever forget, God is never, not even for a minute, not thinking about you. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your your undeserved love for us. We have done nothing that you should be mindful of us, and yet you are. So, Father, help us to just, rather than to focus on what the enemy wants us to see, all our failures, all of our unworthiness, help us to see what you see. Help us to see ourselves and our lives through the blood of Jesus, which has washed us clean, reconciled us to you, so that we can stand blameless before you. We don't have to stand in front of you holding a list of all of our wrongs holding a list of all of our faults, but we can stand before you and just like a good papa, we can climb up on your lap and just feel how much you love us. We can leave all that baggage behind because you don't want to see it and you don't care about it. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for your love. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you want to take communion with us, If you're at home, you can grab your supplies. If you're here in house, we have them on the table in the back. After communion, we have a prayer team here and they'll be hanging out in the back. If you need prayer for anything, they would be happy to pray with you back there. We have the testimony board. We have the crosses where you can pin prayers to them. If you're out online and you wanna do this, you can either comment in in the stream where you're watching prayer requests, or you can email prayer at discovercommunity.church. Give us your prayer requests. We'll pray over those throughout the week. Prayer is such a powerful weapon against the lies of the enemy. Sometimes we just need somebody to agree with us on God's greatness and his goodness. So if you have your supplies, take the body, the body of Christ willingly given by Jesus. He knew what he was in for. And he did it because he loved you. He loved those who accept what he did for them and he loved those who don't and never will accept what he did for them. But if you call him your Lord and Savior, take the body. By the blood of Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. Again, so we don't have to stand there with our list of wrongs, that mental list of faults that we all carry around with us you know when you get there and try and show him that book he's not going to want to see it so just leave it behind that's not how he sees you 
Father sees you through the blood of Christ, making you clean. Take the blood. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys.